What happened to all the people who died before Christ died for our sins? Well, that's the question we'll tackle on this edition of Wisdom 828, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Who are you? Who are so wise? A viewer sent in an interesting question. Uh, what happened to all the people that died before Christ died for our sins? Heaven and hell were existent from the beginning, but since Christ died for our sins, so we didn't have to, uh, where would the people go uh, before him? Uh, referring to the people who truly never heard the prophecies or knew about uh, the required sacrifices or rituals? Or is it safe to assume everyone uh, knew what needed to be done in order to be saved before Jesus came? Well, there's quite a few questions in that uh, little episode, but today we're just going to look at one thing, how God saves sinners before Christ's resurrection. The question about those who have never heard the gospel, that'll be another episode, so you be watching. Our viewer is right to point out the centrality of Christ's death and resurrection as the means of God's plan of salvation. There is no other plan. Jesus said that he was the only way to the Father. Paul said that there is no other name under heaven for salvation. The writer to the Hebrews said that God spoke many times in the past through many prophets, but in the days of Jesus Christ, God's last word on the matter of salvation was the incarnate Son of God. God sent his Son as the Savior in whom any sinner must trust to be accepted by God. This means that there is no salvation outside of Christ's death and resurrection. But that event took place sometime between AD 30 and 33. So what happened to those people who were not alive at the time of Jesus or before? In other words, how could someone in, in 356 BC or 2500 BC have an opportunity to trust in Christ if, if they were never born? The first answer to this question is to remember that the basis of salvation has always been the death of Jesus Christ and the requirement is faith in God's revealed promises in him for salvation. Now, I say it that way because we need to understand something about the way the Bible depicts the promise of salvation. The Bible reveals God's plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation as a progressive unfolding. And that's to say God slowly and with perfect timing revealed the promise of salvation at different points in time in what theologians call salvation history. It was not several different plans, but the unfolding of one plan revealed so that it gives increased clarity to the final scene of the cross. It, it all started in Genesis, uh, like the first rays of the sun uh, bringing on sunlight. On, on May 30th, uh, the sun rose at 5.14 uh, in the morning, but uh, you know that at 5.05, there's a light gray hue that begins to illuminate our neighborhoods and it chases the darknesses away. Well, at that time, the sun isn't fully over the horizon yet. It's, it's not even at the horizon, but just below it, and yet there's light. And then as the sun rises in the sky, the light shines brighter and we see things more distinctly and the heat of the sun becomes more intense. And so the first recognized early dawn of the promise that God would save sinners is found in Genesis 3.15, which is usually called by theologians the Proto-Evangelium, or the first pronouncement of the good news. God pronounced this good news that he would personally solve the problem 
of humanity's fall into sin and alienation from him brought about by the sin of Adam and Eve. And astonishingly, it was during God's pronouncement of curses on the serpent that God said to Satan, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will bruise or crush your head and uh, as if to say, all you'll be able to do is bruise his heel. This is the first rays of the gospel. It signaled that from that moment on, there would be a spiritual war between Satan and humanity. But Satan's real target, let's remember, is God. He wants to unseat God from the throne and take humanity's worship for himself. And that's why Satan does everything that he can to blind the eyes of fallen, sin-saturated people and keep them from receiving the knowledge of God found in Jesus. And sadly, he finds a willing and cooperative ally in the heart of every person who's born. Sinful people whose hearts are hard toward God and minds are darkened by pride. We are born with hearts ready to give allegiance to Satan and his kingdom. We all have to face the reality of this picture as Paul paints it for us of the human condition. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, once you were dead, that is spiritually dead, because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of this unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. To put it bluntly, there is no one righteous enough to be accepted by God, not one. But Paul doesn't leave us without good news because he goes on to say, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. And so there it is again, belief the need for faith. But our question remains, how does that work for all of those generations before Christ? Well, let's look at some examples. And we'll start with the faith of Adam and Eve that they had right after the fall and uh, before they were escorted out of the garden. Well, here's the idea. Adam and Eve were saved by faith in God's promise in Genesis 3.15. In that verse, God pledged to see to it that their sin would be dealt with uh, through the offspring of Eve who would crush and overcome Satan's opposition to God, which is a part of every person's heart. So here's how that worked. Eve wasn't always called Eve. When Adam first met her in Genesis 2:23, he simply called her woman or Isha in the Hebrew. But upon hearing the promise of salvation in chapter three, Adam immediately changed her name to Eve or Hava, meaning the mother of all living all human life would have its source in her body. So how is Adam's renaming of Eve an act of faith? By naming her Eve, the mother of all living, Adam believed that when God said he'd see to it, that he would overcome the serpent and his poison that infects all people, his action, that is Adam's action to name her, was a response of faith in God's word of promise. Adam knew that he would be saved by an offspring, a descendant 
who would come through Eve and defeat the enemy that deceived him. The object of Adam's and Eve's faith was God's promise, his promised provision of a descendant who would save them. God's word of promise gave them the gift of faith to respond in trust. Now, what's interesting about this is that following Adam's act of faith, the Lord acts immediately on behalf of the couple by providing them adequate protection to cover their shame and preserve them uh, for that new hostile environment to which they were going to be banished. Their humanly designed fig leaves, they were replaced by new clothes made by God from the skins of animals. The text says that they were clothed with garments, very important word, and this word is reminiscent of the priestly garments made for Aaron as the high priest who served God in the tabernacle. Priests had to be properly clothed before God in the administration of their office, and so God made them garments by killing an animal, that is Adam and Eve, made them garments by killing an animal as a sacrifice for and an atonement offered for sin and bestowed those garments on them to cover the guilt of this couple. Now this brief story is really a tribute to Adam's faith in the promise of a savior that God revealed in, the, in verse 15. And even though it was a terrible lesson to have to learn, Adam learned to accept God's word in faithful obedience. And all the way through the New Testament, we see men and women responding to God's promise of salvation by faith. Abel responded to the Lord by faith in the way that he worshiped God. Noah responded to the promise of salvation by building an ark. The most notable response, of course, of faith to God's promise was Abraham. In fact, Paul said in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3 that Abraham responded to the gospel by believing in the promises of God and by his faith he was justified. Rahab and her family were saved because they believed the God of the Israelites was the Lord, Lord over all of the nations. At each moment in salvation history, the people who were saved were those who believed the revelation of God's promise that began way back at the garden. With each unfolding of that revelation came more clarity in the march of salvation until Jesus came and was revealed as the Savior. And then, like the full strength of the noontime sun, the salvation of God was fully seen in Jesus Christ at his resurrection. Now, we may wonder how to explain this linear progress of salvation in uh, Christ that can reach all the way back to the dawn of time and stretch all the way forward to the end of time. Well, there's two ways to think about this. First of all, Peter tells us that with God, uh, who sees the end from the beginning, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Time and distance, they're not a problem for God at all. But another passage I think is even more helpful. In 2 Corinthians, it says, for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between a yes and a no. He is God's ultimate yes. He always does what he says. And here's the point that I wanna emphasize. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Well, all the promises of God uh, for salvation, starting all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and unfolding all the way forward to Revelation 22.21 are absorbed in, we might say, or tied to Christ. He fulfilled each unfolding of the promise of salvation from beginning to end. And he secured the promise with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. 
It's true today uh, that we have more of the revelation of salvation than people living before the resurrection of Christ. We see the full picture, but we enter this salvation the same way, by faith, just as Adam and Noah and David. We, uh, they believed in the promise that would come. We believe in the promise that's been fulfilled. Faith is a gift that you need to believe. If you have not asked, uh, yet believed in Christ, ask God to reveal to you the promise of salvation in Christ and that he would give you the faith to believe and then rest in that salvation and begin to enjoy the greatest relationship any human being can ever enjoy and that is friendship with God. Well, that's all for now because these guys are wanting to do some work out there. So thanks for joining me and thanks to Steve Dyan, a good friend behind the cameras. We fulfill the mission of Wisdom 828, the Stamp Out Spiritual Malnutrition one episode at a time. You be of good cheer.